Welcome to A Flash of Beauty, the podcast, an audio experience dedicated to the further exploration of Bigfoot and the people Bigfoot has revealed itself to. What started as a documentary of personal narrative encounter stories and expert testimony has now shifted into a deeper inquiry into the forever changed lives of those that have witnessed firsthand this hidden truth. My name is Tobe Johnson co-producer of Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. Join me along with the crew and creators of this doc, director Brett Eichenberger, producer Jill Rimmen-Snyder, and cinematographer Michael Ferry, as we go back into the trees to sit down once again with each guest in search of the truth, no matter how strange. All right, back again with me, Brett Eichenberger, Jill Rimmensnyder, and absent again, Mike Ferry. Mike, come on, man. Let's yeah, get Mike. let's get things going here. Um, now, Mike's always here in spirit. So, um, you know, you can meet all these people in person. Uh, shake the flesh, as they say, at Phenomicon in Vernal, Utah. I'll go ahead and get that plug out of the way. Um, we have a premiere that's going to happen in dinosaur land. I didn't know it was actually lovingly called dinosaur land but vernal oh, utah yeah. uh three Have hours outside Flash of Salt. beauty the, the shot of the dinosaur yeah <laughs> right <laughs> well tell people what's going on at phenomicon and how uh, flash of beauty is involved so um jill and i've been attending phenomicon for the past two years and it's been amazing it's been incredible we can't endorse it enough um you get especially if you're a fan of skinwalker ranch series which we think is a great series um you, you can get up close and personal with those guys. Of course, they're busy, but um, you can get your photo taken with the cast and crew of Skinwalker Ranch. And not to mention there's anybody who's everybody, or anybody who's anybody um, in the paranormal realm and world is going to be there. And um, there will be surprises, I can guarantee that. So um, we will be premiering the film September 6th, I don't know what time yet, but uh, maybe in the evening. It's in the evening. It's in the evening. It's like the opening. It's one of the opening uh, events uh, yeah. for the film. The film festival really kicks off Phenomicon. Yeah. And it's it's yeah. it'll be on a big screen, which you're not going to want to miss. And 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 I got to say that you know watching our films, our films are always you know made in a cinematic style to be screened in theaters and unfortunately in today's day and age we don't get a chance to do that as much as we'd like to but that's that's the way to watch the movies and it's a lot of fun to do it that way so if you can if you can make it you know vernal's not that far away from denver or salt lake city you can fly into either one of those airports rent a car come out um everybody is friendly everybody is sharing it's well organized. You will have the time of your life. Come out and say hi. Yeah. And the kickoff of Phenomicon starts on uh, the 6th. I believe it's Wednesday at 1 o'clock. It goes to Saturday, all the way to Saturday evening. So it's a prolonged event with breakout rooms, adventures, hijinks, uh, in-depth uh, discussions of a different paranormal variety. I think there's over 20 speakers uh, coming to this one, uh, just a, a glimpse at uh, some of the people showing up, including George Knapp, uh, Dave Schrader of uh, former Darkness Radio. I think he's had some travel channel shows, all the guys from Blind Frog and Skinwalker. 
uh, Ryan Skinner, uh, who uh, was boots on the ground outside of Skinwalker Ranch, kind of got grandfathered into the team periodically to look into some stuff. Yeah. And um, and us. So come check us out and uh, we'd be happy to see you there. Now, um, Jill, tell people what's coming up here in the future as far as projects with you, because we have some news to talk about, some websites to give out. But the guests we're talking to tonight have a radio show that they're doing on a, on a pretty big uh, channel. So go ahead, Jill. So in no particular order, I'm just I'm just coming in hot. I'm just going to put it out there. So we are talking to Ron Moorhead and Scott Nelson about uh, their experiences at Sierra Camp. And if you're not familiar with the Sierra Sounds, buckle up. It's the real it's the real deal. Uh, so they are in addition to our show that's going to come out this morning. Uh, well, technically, it would. I guess it would be a Wait. morning for some of them, but it'll be for coming us. out. It'll be live well, tonight on Coast to Coast AM. Correct. Okay. Can we stop for a second? Sure. <laughs> I'm. All right, Jill and Brett. We have some announcement here. Our guest today. Um, why don't you talk about them and what's happening? as much as you feel comfortable with, because we have a, a teaser towards the end of this interview, but we can talk about some stuff. Uh, who wants to go first? Jill does. I sure do. <laughs> I, I always jump at the opportunity to go first. Uh, so our guests, uh, Ron Moorhead and Scott Nelson, will also be on Coast to Coast AM this evening and they're going to be talking all about their experiences at the sierra camp uh the sierra sounds and and as tobe said uh some other stuff coming up uh stick around and listen uh to the all the way to the end of the podcast and you'll hear a little bit about about the next project coming up and uh if you don't hear oh what no, you're fine. I'm just going to mention okay. the fact that it's August 7th. You're listening to this now this morning. It dropped at six in the morning. I hope you had a nice black cup of joe. But on August 7th, that evening, you can go back in the archives if you listen to this later. You can also find Ron and Scott on Coast to Coast. And they're also going to make a, an announcement on this show here uh, as well. So, um, you know, it's a nice opportunity for them to get out they're both big names. It wasn't hard to get them on a show like that. They've done Art Bell's show before they've talked to George Norrie. In fact, Ron was having dinner with George Norrie last year, I think, uh, somewhere up in Bellingham and, and speaking uh, on the same subject matter as the Sierra Camp. So um, that's coming up. And uh, maybe we can get Scott Nelson to show up at Phenomicon too. And, um, you know, we can talk him into finishing some projects he's got going on as well. Brett, any final words? Um, I just think this this is a great show, and I am glad that you guys are listening to us right now, and I think you're going to love it. And, hey, Brett, Tobe, did, do you guys feel like even though this interview with Ron and Scott, it's, not, it's longer than our average interview, but don't you feel like we – barely scratched the surface like oh, there's yeah. so much more oh yeah 
We just we just yeah. got started. It, we just got started with those guys. I mean, it's yeah. I'll just well, yeah. and, and and no one, you know, sometimes just getting started with a Bigfoot story is actually a painful exercise. <laughs> but when it comes to Brett and when it comes to uh sorry, Ron and Scott, um their book solid all year. Ron goes over his itinerary at the end of this episode and he's speaking like <laughs> seven times and i think ron might be celebrating his 80th birthday and wow. he's traveling more than any of us i think I, I i don't know certainly myself so um yeah no it's uh these guys aren't settling down people want to know more and uh, you may have the opportunity to know more about scott and ron so uh, stick around for the end of this uh this particular podcast and certainly tune in tonight um, boy, they're on every radio station on coast to coast and take a gander at all the bombs being dropped in the world of Sasquatch and the Sierra sound and, and language, crypto language, uh, via Scott Nelson. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and start the show. Our guest today, Ron Moorhead and Scott Nelson. All right. We're here with Scott Nelson and Ron Moorhead. Ron, you almost need no introduction. You're the voice behind the voices. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about the Sierra sounds, but we can't really do that without Scott Nelson in tow because he puts the science behind the voices here. Navy cryptolinguist Scott Nelson, Ron Moorhead, both of you together. Happy to have you on the show. And of course, Brett and Jill. So without further ado, uh, this is going to be an extended format for the audience listening here. We're winding things down for season one and we can't really just have a 60 minute show with these two. So uh, how are you guys doing? Very well. Thank you. Ron, Scott, let's start with you, Ron. And uh, Scott, you join in as needed here. But Ron, tell people a little bit about how you got up to the mountain in the high Sierras as far as your interest in looking into Sasquatch. Explain to people how this happened in the beginning. Yeah, I got involved with a group of hunters, which have uh, been going up there since 1958, very remote area in the Sierra Nevadas, California. And uh, anyway, they came out with a story in early 1971 about this uh, uh, entity that was up there, some kind of presence that was making noises that they just uh, well, didn't know what to do with. They went out in uh, their little shelter and uh, saw this huge track. And they figured this this is not a bear for sure. And of course, the sounds didn't sound like a bear. And anyway, they came out and told the other guys. And I wasn't one of the hunters, but I was one of the guys. I, I uh, friends with them all. And uh, the other guys thought, well, it has to be a bear or something. So they went and all went up there and they started experiencing the same thing again. And uh, they didn't come out where they're supposed to. But one of the guys got freaked out the very, very first night. And he left the next morning, left him a note and said, I'm out of here. And he hiked all the way out and back and came back down to the valley and said, uh, what the Johnson brothers told us is true. There's some kind of monster up there. So anyway, uh, he wouldn't go back uh, to check on the guys like the wives wanted because they were a day late. They didn't come out when they were supposed to. And uh, so he said, I'll go back if you go back with me, but I'm not going in that area by myself. So I went back with him and graciously so, kind of exciting me really. Uh, there's a monster up there. I want to know about it. <laughs> Nothing can hurt you when you're 29 years old, you know, and that's what I was then. 
And uh, so we, we checked in and the guys were okay, but I got to see tracks and see what they had recorded. Uh, and I listened to that anyway. They were packing up ready to get out. And uh, you got to get out when you want to get out because daylight finds you in the dark and you're going to be in trouble. Is that right, Scott? That's uh, right. Yeah, quite right. <laughs> quite right. <laughs> so anyway, uh, fortunately, uh, Bill McDowell, my friend, he let me ride his horse out. And uh, otherwise, I'm not sure I'd have made it because my legs felt like rubber. They were so, I thought I was in good shape too. I mean, I was taking all kinds of martial arts and stuff like that. I just, I was not in shape for that 10,000 foot elevation and <laughs> eight miles mm -hmm. in the wilderness. So that's how I got started. We all, I started going back there as often as anybody go with me and uh, started uh, also taking tape recorders and recording their sounds. And and uh, it wasn't until the winter of 71 that the snow hit the, hit the Sierras that we couldn't get back in. So uh, Warren Johnson wrote a letter to Ivan Sanderson, a cryptozoologist. Uh, and Ivan Sanderson thought somebody just pulled his leg. 23-page handwritten letter. I got a copy of that. And then uh, he sent it to Alan, or sent it to Peter Byrne on the West Coast. By the way, Peter's uh, not doing well right now. This just between us. So anyway, us and the rest of the world is listening to this, I guess. <laughs> but uh, he's 95, 96, something like that. So getting back to the story, um, Peter thought, oh, this can't be real. If you get, see, big for more than once in your life, you got hit by lightning twice, you know. So he sent it down to Al Berry, who was, who was uh, working for a newspaper in California. He said, if you want to check this out, you can. We think it's a hoax. So Al came down and made an appointment to talk to us all, and he did. And uh, we didn't know all this was going on between the three of them uh, until later on when I got to read Al's uh, notes and letters and stuff that was written back and forth. So Al went up there looking for a hoax. and <laughs> We didn't know that. We thought he just interested like we were. That he was an investigative reporter for a newspaper in Redding, California. And that's kind of how it got started with us. And uh, we started taking Al in, and he started experiencing the same thing, recording it. And he took it seriously. He was always looking for who could be pulling strings up here, who could be doing this way back here in the middle of nowhere and leaving no sign. Because he was really looking for signs or something. He found out later he was going through our packs and everything else when we were out walking around. And uh, so we didn't really become friends until some time after this. And uh, he wrote a book about this, uh, Bigfoot. He co-authored it with Dan Slate in 1976 or 78, I think it was. And uh, it wasn't until 1978 when he got Dr. Curlin. Hang on, I've got to turn this off. Sorry about that. It's Tobe trying to call me. Probably about Peter. Uh, anyway... Uh, Todd, excuse me, not Todd. Uh, that's how it got started. And I just started going up there often and recording and doing all this. And Al Berry was recording too, but he fostered the studies. He knew how important this could be if it was proven out to be not a hoax or something real. And we knew it was real because when you're back there and you get in that area, who's going to, who can do that? You know? First of all, you, in order to make sounds like that, you got to have some equipment because they're really powerful. And uh, you're just not going to walk in there and set something up without somebody seeing some tracks or something because no one else went to where we, where we went. And uh, uh, he ended up finding, finally finding uh, Dr. Curlin at the University of Wyoming to uh, take, the, take it on seriously. But he got laughed out of a couple other universities who 
prior to all this, he took it to uh, Ivy Teibel, who would uh, investigate the Watergate tapes. And they, they took it serious. They thought, well, this is too powerful to be human-made. It was made at the time of recordings, but they didn't want to do a study on it because they charged a lot of money. And they suggested we find a university that would take it on. And finally, uh, after he went to Dr. Lieberman and another doctor in uh, Washington State, who also thought he was pulling their leg, they wouldn't take it on. You know, they're in their paradigm. And uh, But anyway, Curlin did, did a year-long study and showed that they were outside the human range and also inside the human range, that they could make just about any sound that they want to. And uh, it represented an animal over eight foot tall. So I don't know how, uh, like Dr. Krantz, he passed away now too, but by the way, he lived right there in Swim. Uh, he did. And uh, he, uh, he didn't... Uh, he didn't think our sounds were real because they got to be from a prime. It had to be a primate out there if it's anything less than human, and <clears throat> they don't don't give any any weight to anything else. So, uh, so anyway, uh, I just started going with it. Out, I teamed up and I produced a couple of CDs and written a couple of books now. And fortunately, in two thousand eight, uh, Scott Nelson got a hold of it, uh, and he by accident. And he's a cryptolinguist, two-time graduate of the Navy uh, Navy School of Language, uh, Foreign Languages. Uh, he was uh, trained to, he could probably tell you this better than me, but he was trained to decipher uh, sounds to see if it's a code or if it's language. And if it is a language, uh, what's, it, what's it mean, if anything? Uh, or just, is it a language or not, or is it just a code? So, and if there's any... Uh, uh, maliciousness in it, I guess, is a good way to put it. And he couldn't find any, and he said they are speaking a language by the human definition of language, which means, for something very important, uh, only humans, according to Dr. Lieberman, Brown University, have the Bokana mechanism for speech like we're making now. And uh, when he says that, that kind of puts, in my eyes, when you've got three professionals like Dr. Curlin, Scott Nelson, Dr. Lieberman saying these three things, it puts them in a, a category of a human component. And uh, they're either hybrids or they've been given the attribute through DNA manipulation by, a, by an alien of some type or someone with advanced knowledge. So, there. <laughs> Scott, uh, explain to the yeah. folks um, how you got involved with this because Ron said by accident, tell the folks how you found these sounds. Well, I, I like to say right off the end, I never was a Bigfoot guy. Um, I was teaching languages and, uh, and philosophy at a military college. And by accident, uh, I was with my son in my classroom. Uh, we were Googling for the first time uh, a subject for a report that he had to write. He was 12 years old at the time. Stephen, my son, by the way, who's been up on that mountain with me and Ron five times. Five of our expeditions up there, Stephen was with us. Um, and so we, uh, by mistake, uh, I Googled in Bigfoot sounds, and it took me to the, to the uh, Sierra sounds on the BFRO, Bigfoot Field Research Organization. Um, and immediately, I heard something in there that was completely different than anything I'd ever heard. Having spent thousands of hours listening and analyzing the human voice on tape, there was something different about these sounds. And I knew it immediately. That's, <laughs> and it, everything changed after that. I can tell you the three things that I knew immediately, right? 
that it was not a human, okay, but it was speaking a language. And the third thing is I knew that it wasn't fake. And I have many reasons that I, you know, that I could go on and on and on about to uh, verify those three conclusions that I had immediately. And I've never uh, wavered from those three conclusions. Then after, after uh, a few days of detective work, uh, I found Ron told, and finally convinced him that I was not a crackpot. <laughs> and uh, and in, in two days, I had uh, copies of uh, uh, all three of the discs on CD, all three of the tapes on CDs. Essentially, uh, Barry Tape 1, what I now call the Barry Moorhead tapes, Barry Tape 1, Barry Tape 2, and the Moorhead tape. After that, I, I spent uh, about four months uh, transcribing all of those sounds, um, getting the, the sounds on paper, and then I made a trip out to California to meet uh, Al Barry and Ron face-to-face, uh, and that's what started it all. Okay, listening to the sounds here throughout the show, we'll play some of these sounds. Not quite yet, but down down the road here. the uh, The sounds themselves have been coined the term um, "samurai chatter." And um, was it Matt Moneymaker who came up with that term, Ron? Yes. Okay. So he heard him just before he started the BFRO and. Yeah. He came up to Washington and heard him when I was living up there. And it really, he, uh, it really sticks. I mean, because it does bring to mind an mm -hmm. old samurai movie, and you can just picture kind of Japanese type language uh, going back and forth here. So, Scott, did you hear that Asiatic flair to this? Here? Um, it, it's it has a a guttural. Um, diaphragmic staccato you would say you know uh, 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 like 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 you say an old samurai an old samurai movie mm -hmm. to most people it sounds like that now when i when i first brought that up when i first heard it and i was playing it over and over again and my my son was right there with me he says what are you doing dad and i said there's there's son there's language in here Mm -hmm. and he says, no, dad, no, it sounds like apes fighting mm -hmm. or coyotes fighting to me. I said, no, son, we have to slow it down like dad used to do in the Navy. And that's why I, I had, I said, we got to get a hold of these tapes. That's why I went on my detective work and to try to find wrong, you know, and someone from the BFR was kind enough to tell me who it was that had the tapes. Right. Hmm. Let's go back, Ron, to um, the Sierra Sounds. Brett, Jill, of course, uh, chime in here as questions develop. But um, when it comes to the Sierra Sounds, this camp, this hunting site, high, I think you said some seven to eight miles off the beaten path, only by horseback, incredibly remote and at times treacherous. We'll talk about the treacherous times because Scott was a part of that. Um, this camp dates back to b before the 60s and the 50s. Does it date back but even before the 1950s? Well, I'm not sure. That's when the Johnsons started going up there in 58. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if the camp was there because there's signs of old sheep herders uh, from the area from eons ago. 
So, I mean, like carving on a tree or something like that, that's really old. And you find uh, old rusted cans here and there. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, rarely, but uh, this one camp where I think sheep herders mm -hmm. were there. So uh, I don't know how far go, goes back, but probably mm -hmm. way back. And uh, mm -hmm. again, the Johnsons just started going there until 58. Mm -hmm. And uh, it started uh, becoming a camp then that they visited each year and hunted. Hunting's great up there. I mean, you could get any, anything you wanted. And uh, they've always got a deer tag or a couple of them, for, one for their wife, one for them. They'd go out with a deer. And Bill got involved, my uh, good friend Bill McDowell. He's a, uh, he's a contractor, a general contractor, but he was also a, a, a taxidermist on the side. So he got involved with them to uh, work on the heads they brought out and things like that. So he got invited up to camp. And he had a horse, and they could also haul the deer out, which is a big deal when you're eight, eight miles back in the wilderness. That's whatever, whatever you do, you got to get them out of there. So they would always uh, gut the deer and trim it and quarter it while, while we're at the camp and bag it, put it in, in, uh, in bags and put it on a horse or a mule and take it out that way. So mm -hmm. I met Bill. I met Bill and knew them earlier. And, uh, I, again, I wasn't a hunter, so I didn't really participate in going up there. But when I was asked to, it, especially when I found out there was some kind of a monster up there, and, you know, and of course, Donald, who got scared off, I wouldn't go back. He was very religious. Like, they're all kind of religious guys, but I was too. I mean, Bill and I were, were board members, uh, founding members of a huge mega church there. And um, so we, we knew about the Nephilim mentioned in the Bible. We knew about the... Of those things like that, but that's all we knew. We didn't think about Bigfoot. Bigfoot was not on anybody's radar. Let's go back, Ron. Not everyone knows about the Nephilim. Uh, explain to people the link between that word, the Nephilim, uh, the Bible, and Sasquatch, and the possibilities of there being, you know, co-mingling. Yeah. Well, that's a long story too. But it's a uh, Nephilim are a giant species that uh, that came from what they call the fallen ones, which are angelic or alien beings that came to earth and started manipulating the genome of uh, females and impregnating them and uh, creating giants. And that was called the Nephilim. And they were actually eating the earth up. They were eating people. They were really out of control. So that's why supposedly the deluge came, the big flood. And, and that got rid of uh, supposedly a lot of them, but they didn't. I mean, uh, angels, just like we are aliens, just like us, we all have choices. So, again, you find out in later on in Numbers uh, 1333 that uh, they were here again and uh, there were giants. And in fact, uh, you really look at it, there's several ways they could have made it through the deluge. And they could have maybe went underground. There's a lot of signs of, of, uh, of uh, towns underground over in Turkey. And I got pictures of that. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's thousands of people living underground. Uh, so a lot of theory that these things go underground, and that's why you don't see them too so much. But the Nephilim are, are a cross between uh, uh, an angel and human. And, uh, of course, they don't uh, necessarily call them. If you get into the uh, cuneiform text, which is the oldest text uh, in existence, came into the Sumerian uh, culture and upper um, Mesopotamia and it's 3400 years BC is when it was the first written language they have ever discovered otherwise prior to that they use uh, uh, hieroglyphs you know pectoglyphs signs to, to talk to each other in written form 
So from that language, uh, just about all the cultures, including our current Bible, have evolved up through that. And with each king, depends on what he wanted, depending on how it was interpreted. And a lot of the nuggets are in there, though, that are real. And uh, they've been working through a long time. Uh, I, I'm getting off track here a little bit, but uh, <laughs> it's interesting stuff to me when you get into that. Well, so you brought it up, though, Ron, based upon the fact that you're kind of an elder of a typical non-denominational church, and people are steering a conversation, uh, you know, one way as it relates to the possibility of you looking for monsters, and these monsters and Christianity can only be one thing. And again, it steers us back to this UFO conversation where, People at the Pentagon were steering, you know, Lou Elizondo certain directions based upon the fact that UFOs could very well be Nephilim. So they were kind of not granted permission. Harry Reid was told this in particular, uh, you know, as far as funding. So it's an interesting thing to bring up because of the fact that, you know, our worldview is kind of shaped by who we associate with and the things we do after church may have consequences. So were you ever nervous looking for monsters just based upon your relationships and your standing? Because you kind of had a standing. You were a businessman, a well-known businessman in a small community, and here you are looking for monsters. Were you already <laughs> Indiana Jones to these people looking for uh, monsters? We didn't talk about that much, uh, Toby. Actually, Al Berry carried the torch, and for years, uh, we didn't, because we were all businessmen and, and respecting the community and all that, so we didn't really talk about it uh, only to our friends and relatives and uh, we certainly didn't talk about the uh, uh, what do you want to call it metaphysical or the woo-woo stuff or what do you want to call it that was going on up there uh, you kind of just put that on the shelf because you don't know where it goes in your head it just I mean you hear something that can't be heard you see something that can't be seen and then how do you tell people that's real you don't I mean not without losing credibility. And that's what holds a lot of people back now. Uh, well, were, you, were you, now you mentioned the woo early on in this interview here. How long did it take for your initiation to be at the Sierra camp to experience the high strangeness? Was it immediate? Did it warm up over time? And give an was, example did, of what you mean by that. Well, it's always been there. I mean, uh, yeah, lights uh, rolling around and not flashlights, but I mean, orbs or something like that. And, uh, sounds that we couldn't couldn't find a source of. I mean, metallic sounds uh, from the air above. I heard, oh, or from inside the shelter. We was all inside the shelter one time. We heard where our camp was being tore apart, and we we thought the cans and the barrels we'd hauled in there on mules and cabled to the tree so the bears wouldn't take them off. And we thought there was just being rambled everywhere and. You look out there later when all the commotion stop and nothing's changed, nothing's moved, nothing's happened that you can see. Well, what do you do with that? You just put it up on the shelf and forget about it because you can't explain it. Uh, so we don't know if we're all being hypnotized or if we all uh, imagine it. No, we do it. We're separate people. We didn't do that. Or, or if you're listening to another dimension. What, Ron, what were some of the wilder theories as to what these guys could be, what these monsters, quote-unquote monsters, could be? Well, I, I believe in aliens, like most all of us do now, and I think they are a, a, a remnant or a, 
product of alien intervention is the genome of uh, primates. And they're not all the same. Depends on what alien did what and for what it, what their agenda was. Uh, so there are ones that out there that are friendly, probably, and like ones we encountered. They don't try to eat us or nothing. And uh, there was there's also some that are malicious, like the ones that they were encountering up in Port Lock, Alaska, and other places too. They kind of encountered some bad ones. But then, what makes bad? I mean, it's all who's telling the story. And uh, the government likes to control the narrative of any of these stories. And I'm sure the government knows about these beings. So what are they here for and what are they doing and what it all comes about? Because I, I got into the science of quantum physics because Al Berry, being a master's degree in science, said that whatever you do up here, don't talk about strangers and you got to stay with science. But he had classical science in his in his uh, baggage. So he was in the thing, you know, the stuff don't exist. You can't talk about it. You're never going to get invited anywhere to talk. And we want we wanted to start telling people about these sounds because curling what curling did was significant. Showing he wrote a paper on it, presented it to the anthropology of the unknown in British Columbia in 1978, I think it was. Yep. And, uh, and yet that still didn't get academia's attention because it represents an animal. And you know, he's a professor of electrical engineering, high class, he's got high clearances, he's written a bunch of papers and he's I, I did a due diligence on him and he's just uh unquestionable he knows what he's doing and he he showed in his paper he said in a book too man like monsters on trial if anybody wants to look it up his writing and his study on this uh so when you get to that professor behind it and you get someone like scott saying what he says it's a language because professor Curlin's not a language expert scott is uh, you got Dr. Lieberman, who is a, a cognitive researcher, scientist at Brown University, uh, mostly in uh, in howler monkeys, but he's he says only humans, any animal on this planet, only humans have the vocal mechanism for language, and that's very significant. Yes, Janelle. So, you know, the, gosh, I have so many questions, but um, I'm still trying to wrap my head around Scott. How do you even begin? to uh, identify and break down the language. Can you, can, can you give us a Reader's Digest version well, on how, uh, how you do uh, this? Well, and after, after having transcribed uh, you know, all the tapes, we, and we ended up, well, we have all, almost 90 minutes with all of the tapes. And uh, I have 75 pages of transcripts. Right. So um, after doing that, I authored a paper, uh, what, which I now call the SPA or the Sasquatch Phonetic Alphabet, which details um, my methodology of, of doing that, uh, of finding the language. And it also gives us the alphabet of it, um, which I used according to uh, NATO uh, transliteration alphabet. I used the NATO form because that's what I was used to. Okay, I didn't use the international phonetic alphabet because that's an alphabet that no one can read other than linguistics experts. Not even language experts like myself can read it. Okay, But uh, linguistics is a completely different animal than language because that, that linguistics deals with the science of you know, how does the tongue and the teeth make this sound? Right. And you don't have to 
you don't have to speak a single word of a foreign language to study that and to be an expert in that. Okay, so that's a different animal to what I was doing. Anyway, in 2010, I authored the, uh, the, the SPA. And then in 2012, I wrote, uh, I wrote another paper uh, titled The Characteristics of Human Language Evident in the Barry Moorhead Tapes. And in that, uh, again, I used, uh, as Ron referred to Brown University, uh, because they are really the best uh, at language, uh, defining the meaning of language. So I used their definitions on uh, what were the, the uh, functions of language, the elements of language, the properties of language. So I have a whole uh, five-page paper out on that. But uh, just to go with the elements of language, you, have to, you start with, with what we call a phoneme. A phoneme is a single sound. Um, okay, then, then more than one phoneme becomes a morpheme, which we would call a syllable. Some people would call it a word, but we, in language, in linguistics, you can't use the, the word word because it's, it's notoriously impossible to define a word. Because a word to Ron is different than the same word to me. Okay. We can, in other words, we can say the same morpheme or the same syllable, and it can mean something completely different to everyone that speaks it. So we use the term morpheme. So more than one phoneme becomes a morpheme. More than one morpheme becomes an utterance, or what we would uh, lay people would call a sentence. An utterance, more than one utterance becomes a discourse, okay? More than one discourse becomes a conversation. And then when you, ha you have two, two individuals, like we have on these tapes, going back and forth, uh, they're participating in what we call conversational turns. And there is no other... <laughs> There's no other way to understand what these tapes uh, show than to understand them as language, pure and simple. Okay. I think we'd probably be doing a disservice here for the theme of the Sierra sounds if we didn't play some of these darn old sounds. So uh, we're going to play the first clip here. And uh, Ron, I'm going to have you listen to the unaltered version of this and go ahead and comment afterwards and explain to folks uh, the time and place and setting if you know it here. Um, let me get this queued up for us. And this one was titled Disagreement. So um, if everything's set up, I'm going to go ahead and play this sound now. Okay, there's clip number one. Ron, uh, exp explain the scenery, what was happening that day, if you know, and what you think was going on. I think that was Al Berry's in 1972, and he had his bike remoted up behind our uh, shelter about 35, 40 feet on a little pine tree. And uh, something got very close to it, and he 
tried to see, but you couldn't see. And uh, uh, that's one of the issues up there is we rarely got a glimpse of these things. And he never did get even a glimpse of that night. And should have been able to see something. It sounds like it's holding the microphone. It's so close. And that's the comment we get all the time. How come you didn't get a picture? Well, da, 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 da. You just don't get a picture of these things that easy. Uh, so that's the, the story of that. Uh, well, it was night when Al got quite a few good sounds, and I did too, but unfortunately mine burned up in a house fire. And uh, So like, I had a really good cassette. Uh, mm -hmm. It was all cassettes. He had a Sony. I had a, I think an RCA uh, portable three. Uh, took several batteries, to decel batteries, to operate it, but it was stereo. I had these SM58 mics, which I had for my music system, and, and I sucked those through the shelter's walls. And some of my tapes, you could hear this thing walking around out there, the footsteps crunching uh, with my stereo ears. And uh, so anyway, um, he got some incredibly good sounds that night. We all did, but. <laughs> Those with it being labeled, Ron, sorry to interrupt, with it being uh, labeled here as a sound clip disagreement, of course, that's just them guessing at the time since there was no visual. Um, Scott, are you hearing a disagreement in that language clip? Um, it, we would be uh, inferring that mm -hmm. only because of the, um, uh, it sounds like they're excited. And it sounds like uh, their conversational turns are happening rapidly. The problem is, is that almost all of the Barry tape sounds, uh, when they're participating in the conversational turns, sound very much like that because they, um, the prosody of the language or the rate of deliverance is so fast. So it's easy to infer that. Okay, and there let's... are other parts, very other parts of that same uh, section of uh, of tape that uh, that sound very much like that. Well, let's play them. I want you to chime in here. So, what we've done here is we've taken that clip number one. Let's go ahead and play it again, and then directly after that, uh, we agreed. Scott and I agreed that twenty five percent is what we're going to slow the rate down here, so um, we can mm -hmm. chop it apart and analyze it through uh, Scott's ears and eyes. So, let's play the original mm -hmm. here. Okay, now let's play the slowed down by 25% version. Okay, it's a very yes. visceral sound. Scott, tell us more. Well, you can tell when at real time, the first clip that you played, uh, you can tell it, it does sound uh, the, the way that uh, Stevie first um, thought of it, but it, it sounds like apes fighting. It really does to the, to the layperson's ear, right? But when you slow it down a bit, you can very clearly hear the articulated morphemes. 
and the conversational turns, uh, the utterances uh, when, that are exchanged in the discourse. This is very clearly a language. And, and uh, after you hear a certain number of these clips and your ear becomes attuned to them, you don't have to be an expert in language to actually hear that these, this is a, a strange, unknown language spoken by creatures that, can, that have uh, the ability to go way beyond uh, our ability in, in human speech. Now, some people are interested not only in the sounds uh, as you're describing them as being a language, but they go a step further and they analyze where they are and the Hertz level. And they see them as being impossible to fake just based upon where they land on their own computer program to analyze this stuff here. So, sure. um, you know, people like David Ellis, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention him. Also, are, um, you know, they were part of the Olympic Project. Ron, you're a, a member of the Olympic Project, too. The, the sounds have been analyzed uh, over and over again. Is there anything about the sound, Scott, that sounds inherently human besides the conversational tone? I do they <laughs> smuggle in human words? Do, uh, um, or is there language from English? Within no, almost. That? Well, we can't get into. You're talking about cognitive words and expressions. Uh, we can't get into that yet uh, because you're asking me two very different questions. Um, you asked me if there's anything human about it. Almost all of it is human. Because um, all of the phonemes that, uh, that I extracted from those sounds are they're articulated in exactly the same way that humans do. In other words, whatever these creatures are, and I'm trying, not trying to define them, but whatever they are, they are articulating those phonemes exactly the same with the same apparatus that humans have. The whole tracheal tree, the vocal cavity, the lips, the tongue. Um, there's no doubt about it. The, plus, they have uh, quite a, a few sounds that humans can't do. Okay, go into detail about that. Well, it's they do things. Um, well, first off, the, the resonance. Resonance is one thing. Okay, you want evidence for how I know that it's not human? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, <laughs> the resonance is a big thing. They're speaking with lungs that are way beyond the capacity of human lungs. Okay, now, no, I have no scientific evidence for that. I only tell you that from uh, professional experience. Okay. Um, resonance is the prolonged reverberation of sound. That's what resonance is. Okay. And you have to have huge lungs to be able to do what they do. Okay. The second thing is the prosody. The uh, prosody is the rate of the, the speed of delivery of the sounds, of the articulations. Okay. Their way goes way beyond what humans can do. Now, I mean, yeah, I've, I've had people say, well, what about, uh, you know, these guys that do, um, what are they called uh, when they sell a lot of stuff? 
and uh, auctioneers. Auctioneers. auctioneers, yeah, auctioneers can speak very quickly, right? But they have to take a breath. Uh, and it uh, it took me a long time, and I really only uh, figured it out about three or four years ago, because this the rate, the prosody of their deliverance bothered me so much. But uh, about three or four years ago, I finally came to the conclusion that these creatures are articulating on the pant. Now, what that means is that they are articulating on the exhale like humans do, but they are also articulating on the inhale without stopping. And now it's something that humans can do with great difficulty, but they can't communicate in that way. In other words, I mean, you can say, you know, uh, I heard them speak. Uh, you know, you can. It's possible for humans to do it. Now, apes apes do it all the time, but apes cannot articulate consonants. Art, apes can articulate all of the vowel sounds. Even I can do that, right? But you can't do consonants or these morpheme streams. But these creatures are doing it with ease that's one of the that's a big piece of evidence uh that proves to me that these creatures are not human as we as we consider modern humans scott were you ever able to assign any meaning to any of the sounds that you heard uh not not specific meaning not specific meaning no because uh, and, and by the way, that was uh, Ron's constant mantra with me when we first got together doing this is, Scott, what were they what were they trying to say to us? Because especially on Ron's tape, where it's quite evident that the creatures are purposely slowing their language down. Except when they speak into each other, even on Ron's tape, when they speak to each other, it goes back to the the very fast prosody okay but when they're when i believe they're trying to actually communicate with ron and bill up there it's very obvious they, they are trying to slow their voice down and speak to these dumb hairless apes that can't obviously can't understand you know how fast we talk um, so i last, oh, i might sorry oh. Oh, real quick, Jill, one real quick follow-up to that. Um, yeah. Did you ever discover anything by playing the sounds backwards? I never attempted to play them. I've, uh, no, I've never attempted. That's been asked of me, but, you know, Carlin why would I do that? that? Carlin yeah. did that, and he found no evidence they couldn't. Because yeah. that's been the big deal. Everybody, these, these universities, no. Dr. Lieberman, Dr. Uh, or something like that in, uh, first off first off when you play the human the voice i've played the human voice backwards on tape hundreds of times you know in my analysis you know when i was in the navy and the human voice played backwards doesn't sound anything like the human voice going forward it it simply does not it sounds completely different and i've asked i've been asked a hundred times well, how do you know this is not humans just, you know, some tape of humans speed it up really fast? 
Well, it doesn't sound anything like the human voice speeded up either. Because the human voice speeded up sounds like, uh, uh, what's his name? Alfred the Chipmunk. Alfred <laughs> the Chipmunk, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Chipmunks. <laughs> it doesn't sound anything like these creatures. Well, you know, Curlin uh, studied just that. And Correct. And established that, yeah. that they weren't played backwards. You know, they were original at the time of recording, and they were not manipulated in any way. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Al Berry was running into quite a bit. Is somebody think he just monkeying around with monkeying around? Get it? With, uh, <laughs> with, with, with them. So, Ron, <laughs> Scott, I have a question, and I might be uh, getting ahead of myself only because I've been privy to your stories about things that happened at Sierra Camp. But can you comment or go into detail about? mimic mimicry and their abilities to mimic uh words oh. they have heard oh. and whatnot i think they can but that's because uh, because they have such an expansive vocal cavity it's just it's just i think they can mimic anything in fact a lot of people report that i've re reviewed or talked to say they heard their name being called in the woods or they hear their dog's name being called and their dog's not around they hear human voices out there. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you that uh, the, the only time I've heard them uh, live mimic anything was the morning after the first time we tried to get up there and we got Ron down off the mountain and the horses. <laughs> this is before we walked out to see that, you know, what had happened to the horses. And I, it the sun was not even up yet. And, uh, Ron was in bad shape and was not moving at all. And I had sat up in bed and I hear, heard not 20 feet away, right at the foot of the mountain. Uh, I heard very clearly, Scott, just like that, in almost a female voice. And that woke Ron up. And uh, I said, did you hear that, Ron? He said, uh, he said, yeah, he said, is that, uh, is that uh, your daughter? He thought it might have been your daughter coming over, you know, to the horse camp. Rhonda. And I said, no, that's not Rhonda. He said, you said, um, what, was there any cars? Did you see any car lights? He said, no, Ron, there's nobody out there. But, and so we thought about that. We talked about it later on when we had time to, after dealing with the horse incident, um, and we've, I finally came to the conclusion that, that the day before, when we were up on that hill trying to get up there and Ron and I lost track of each other three times because he had to go back down the hill to try to collect the horses and all our gear <laughs> and stuff like that, that we were shouting at each other. I'm going, Ron, just to try to find out where each other was. And so he's going, Scott. Ron, Scott. So I realized that all throughout that previous day, before we made it off that mountain, our names were being shouted back and forth many, many times. So I think that that uh, whatever that was out there saw me sit up in the tent and was just trying to get my attention. But yes, I heard it uh, mimic a, a female woman's voice and call out my name. 
I'm going to play, uh, I went ahead and reversed the sound here just to do it here. So let's go ahead and um, get to the bottom of this here. This was clip number one, the disagreement. And now we're going to play the reverse sound just to play it because I've never heard it this you way. Mean, so. You mean backwards? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, not much sense there. That doesn't that doesn't sound like it's backwards. Yeah, that you sure was, that was backwards. It yeah, it was. You want me to play okay, it again? Well, it's yeah. That does sound sound similar to the way it played forward. Is that because just the fact that it's so alien nature? Well, and the prosody and the staccato of it, mm -hmm. I think, uh, lends to you know to it being very similar forward and backwards but it's not like at all like the human voice being played backwards it's still not the a guaranteed <laughs> it's not the human voice being played backwards now i could take what you just played and i could try to you know transcribe it you know and see how how different it would be from my transcription going forward but you know what would be the use of that it would have no value to me at all Right. Um, you know, I want to ask about the horse incident, the hypnotizing, the broken ribs. But before oh. I do that, Ron, you've been a part of a great many televised shows, including uh, Pilates, Missing 411, The Hunted. Um, Scott, you were there for that uh, that documentary as well. Um, yep. Just in short, you guys are at the uh, Sierra camp with David Pilates. You guys are sitting around a campfire. It's a great shot. And David Polites turns to you and asks you, I think maybe one of the most relevant Bigfoot questions to a lifer, you know, someone who's really invested their life into looking at this mystery. And he asks you whether or not any of the weirder stuff that happened to you, Ron, is embarrassing. And if maybe not everybody thinks that's an interesting question, but I think it's an, a really powerful question because it gets to the bottom of ego and, um, and how you talk about this stuff openly. Did you think that was an, an interesting question yourself and talk about why you're not embarrassed about it? Well, I'm not embarrassed because it's, it's a truthful place and truthful thing that happened. And, I just, you know, I'm at the age where I don't care what anybody thinks. I just kind of go with what's what I, what's, no, I'm not embarrassed at all. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't embarrassed back then because whatever it is, it's bigger than any of us. And I don't mean physically, but it's a big, it's a big deal. You can establish these things, but I don't know we ever will until they all come out and expose themselves and along with their alien makers, which is probably going to happen in a year or two. So not even with talking about the lightsaber floating through the woods or the strange sound. And here you were warned by your friends and companions on the mountain to not talk about the weirder stuff. Were they embarrassed to talk about it? Uh, they didn't. I don't know if they were embarrassed or not. I can't speak for them, but most of them are dead now. But uh, Bill was there with me most of the time. And then when that light went by us, that was Carrie and I. And we both saw this or witnessed it for several seconds. It wasn't going by fast, like something like that. It just was floating through the woods. 
And uh, that was a little bit mm-hmm. concerning because you don't know what it you don't know what it's all about. It's some kind of formative intelligence, I believe. That's what I think orbs are too. It's, it's energy, and it's uh, energy has uh, with a consciousness some type, but it's not in a biological form like we are. You know. Ron, have you ever had language uh, pinpointed to your brain? Have you got mind speak? Have you you got talked to while you're <laughs> up in the woods or when you got back? Not that I know of. I'm too analytical. I, I try to figure out what made me think that. You know, was I thinking about something else? or mm-hmm. uh, Maybe that's why they were talking to me orally, because I couldn't get through my thick brain. So whatever they were saying, of course, my daughter Rhonda thinks she knows what they were saying. But uh, she says, it's really not difficult. Just listen to it. And you know, they're actually saying, Ron, Ron. And uh, I don't know, but they've known me. This was in '74 when I was talking to them, and they was talking back, asking me some questions. And I don't know what they were asking me, but I guess I should listen to all that again and just close my mind and try to hear it. You know, instead of it's almost a crime not having Rhonda on this call with us because she is so entrenched in the story. She's been up to that camp so many times. I was really unaware, Scott, that your son had been up there a lot as well. But how many times do you reckon Rhonda had been up to the uh, Sierra camp and ex- explain her link to this this mystery? Um, well, she's my daughter, number one, and uh, that's her link. But uh, she... Uh... Yeah, she's gone up there a lot, a lot. I mean, since she's probably just a, a young lady of uh, 13, maybe 14, 12, <laughs> something like that. And she's uh, seen them. Yeah, she has seen them. And she's also uh, had other things happen to her up there. Uh, she thinks, I think, one of those things are looking at her as a possible mate or something, because the one she got a really good view of it right in her camp, uh, she turned around seeing this thing. And it was a. Uh, slender but very broad shouldered uh very muscular but very trim it didn't look like an older one which she'd seen an older one also another time but uh they seem to uh look into her for some reason because she's a sweetheart anyway you know she's she's uh my daughter but she's she's, (laughs) my other daughter ronica won't even go up there she never has been up there i'm not going up there where the monkey men are She's heard those sounds, and she sleeps with a knife next to her at night, too. <laughs> but uh, I've taken Royce up there, my son. Uh, he's claimed to have seen one, uh, but he hasn't had the experience that Rhonda's had. Yeah, she's had a hand toucher, uh, a sleeping bag, and uh, she knew if she opened her eyes, she would die. She just, she's had some, if she can get her to talk about it, you know, she'll talk about it, but... Well, let's get into the story here because it's it's a doozy if uh, Brett and Jill, you don't mind here. This takes a few minutes here, but let's set this up. Scott, you went up to the Sierra camp to do long-term research with Ron. It must have taken some planning to pull this off because you have to do it on horseback. But then you guys had some scientific studies that you wanted to pull off when you eventually got to the Sierra camp. Um, talk about this misadventure and um let's let's get into the horseback uh incident <laughs> he's gonna claim he saved my First life one? <laughs> i did <laughs> absolutely just because you see me thrown up in the air 20 feet or wait what well, used no. to be 15 feet <laughs> the re- the way i saved his life 
when he was laying there virtually unconscious, you know, I thought he was dead. And when I, I said, Ron, Ron, and I'm shaking him. I said, Ron, I'm headed down. I'm going to go to get some help. And so I stood, tried to stand up. He grabbed my arm. That's how I knew he was still alive. He grabbed my arm and says, you're not leaving me on this mountain. <laughs> That's how I brought him back to life is I told him I was going to leave him up there and go get help. Well, that was ridiculous. It's too late in the day and you could not get help. <laughs> I'd been bear bait that night. You know? Oh, well, yeah, I know. Well, I didn't well, know what else I could do. Well, Tell wait for me. I had to get my breath. I broke a oh. couple of ribs. So I couldn't so hardly breathe are. anyway. You're thrown off the horse. Scott uh, yeah. does his best to convalesce you. Eventually, you get him back down off the mountain, but your ride hasn't come yet. So you guys are at camp with the horses. Is that correct? As Ron's no. there? No, the horse trader's out the bottom where mm -hmm. we yeah. pulled out. And uh, we got the horses loaded. Scott had to drive my truck pulling a 26-foot horse trader. And that was oh. that was a bit of it. But I had a, uh, <laughs> earlier that day, I thought, my horse was supposed to be trail ready. I bought him and let Scott have my good horse. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, oh. and <laughs> who, who, by the way, so, I believe saved my life. I had, sprung, not throwing me. I had sprung my wrist when my pack horse, he decided he didn't want to go up any further. He just turned around, went back down the hill and I was trying to hold mine and mine was wanting to do the same thing, broke the right rein, but I also got dumped then and sprung my wrist. I thought I broke it. It was swelling up and all that. So anyway, I got that back together and, uh, I think this the same time. I've had so many different yeah. things happen to me up there. Anyway, yeah. went up, uh, went up to the switchbacks further, and uh, uh, the horse acted up again and dumped the load of supplies that we had off this ridge. And uh, Scott was already two, three hundred yards up ahead of me, and I, uh, so I didn't have any help, and I had a sprung wrist. So I was down there trying to pick up stuff we was taken. And we, by the way, I, I keep thinking about the cantaloupes because I couldn't find them all. Oh. And because uh, we had, we had well, to, tell them about the the cantaloupe you found on the trail. Uh, it coming had the back. giant, yeah, it had the giant well, bite taken out of it. Well, wait a minute. Let me tell this story. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I found almost everything, but I'm still trying to tie, uh, tie this pack back on the horse with one hand. That's hard to do. And uh, but I got it back about that time. Scott shows up. And I never did find a sleeping bag until the following year, actually. I ran across it somewhere, but uh, got up there. And what had happened is Scott's horse, he got up to a certain point and wouldn't go any further. That was a good horse, too. That was my mare. And she'd been up there before. She knew everything, but she just wouldn't go. And I said, Scott, don't stop, because I was just catching up with him, with my pack horse and my horse with one rein. And uh, <laughs> I get up there and don't got to get her moving, Scott. You got to get her out of there because if this one stops and starts thinking about what he's doing, he's going to want to go back. Sure enough, he couldn't get her moving. So the pack horse starts to head back down to this rocky area. And I mean, it's a horrible area and uh, had big boulders and steep. And you got to, anyway, uh, there my horse starts to take off. I, hear, oh, I ain't going to make this. So I just, I just bailed off the horse at that time. Let him go. I figured I'll just go down and get him. They can't get by with this because that's a bad deal. <clears throat> so I went back down there and down just below those heavy rocks is where I caught up with him. He was standing there, puckered out. And, uh, uh well, I'm going to ride back. My, I was hurting. Maybe and then I was hurting. So I started to get back on him one rain like this. And 
swung my leg just about to get it over and he starts taking off bucking. <laughs> God, that That's when I saw you go 20 feet in the air and land on the rock. Yeah, it used to be 15 feet. No. Yeah, well, no, I didn't land on the rock. I landed between the rocks, big boulders. It was more like 25 feet in the air. Yeah, well, there it goes. <laughs> be 30 feet before this story's over. <laughs> anyway, I, I just uh, tell you what, just two or three feet either way would have killed me. I mean, the yeah. boulders were just huge. And I slanted between them. And I wasn't trying to, but I couldn't not. I could never could get my other foot in the server. I could have probably handled him. Uh, but anyway, that's that started it off. Then we finally made it on the back because we only we didn't even get halfway up uh, when all this was taking place. Something up there was bothering the horses. Yep. <laughs> and uh, but going back, we found the, one of the kennels I couldn't find on the first trip when I was trying to find everything. And it was all eaten up. Uh, it was inside of it was just gone, and it wasn't like a bird been picking on it or something like that. But something really got that, and we just kept going because we had to get down before dark. And we spent the whole day up there trying to get halfway up this mountain. <clears throat> I got back down, loaded the horses up. Scott had to drive my trailer around to where Rhonda, my daughter, was parked at this campground, and uh, uh, my grand granddaughter was there with her. And they'd set up a tent. And we ran around about, what, 10 miles or so. But it's really on the other side of this big mountain where, they, where our camp is. So we found them there. And we, I think those things come down off that mountain. And then they mess around. Because Rondo saw one down there one time. And there's stories about them messing around that whole area. And uh, I think because people can't go up that way. It's just too steep and too rugged. So anyway, uh, we... Stayed there that night, and Rhonda and Rhonda, Rhonda and uh, Wendy, my granddaughter, had a tent, and something was messing with them that night, and they got up there so frightened, and I kept the fire going in the fire pit. Next morning, they, they find this big log they've been dragged over behind the uh, tent, their tent, a log for the fire, we think. And uh, they also, Rhonda saw one, that's when she got in there said, get up, Dad, you got to get up. So I got up. Hurt me, but I got up. And uh, that's the night also you had those issues happening with you, I think, Scott, wasn't it? Where yep. they had a, a hand came in on you? Yep. And just weird stuff. That's just one little weird story. There's so many. Well, Scott, explain what happened. Well, um, it was, uh, I don't know what it was, deep in the night. Uh, everyone had gone to bed. Cause it had been a really bad couple of days and um, I was woken up and I could see the glow of the remaining part of the fire um, on the side of the tent. And we were in a small tent, me and Ron were. So the tent was, I was pretty close to the, you know, the, the taper of the tent there. And I saw this very huge, uh, silhouette of a hand, a giant hand, slowly come and touch the edge of the tent, which immediately I became frozen in fear. I became paralyzed. And uh, I've never had that happen to me before. And it, it slowly pushed the tent, the edge of that tent down onto my chest. And uh, I couldn't move. But I was able to articulate uh, some speech. And I remember I, I spoke in Russian. 
And I said, um, in Russian, I said, speak to me, speak to me, speak to me. And I said that several times. But, but I, I couldn't, I could barely whisper it. It didn't sound like I, I just did. Because I had no wind. Uh, I'm frightened thinking about it now. Um, and then after a few moments, when I stopped saying that, then suddenly I, there was a very loud pop sound in my head. And suddenly I had, uh, and if you want to call this mind speak, uh, I don't know, but it's the only time I ever experienced anything like that. I, I felt suddenly after the pop, the very loud pop, and, and, and it was also a, loud, a, a very a bright flash of light that accompanied the pop sound. I heard pop. And then suddenly I felt this very uh, strong feel, feeling of well-being. And it kind of said, uh, everything is okay. Everything's okay. Go to sleep. And I went immediately to sleep. And next morning, the horse is up, upside down, all four legs up. Too. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, no. that was the morning before. That was yeah, a that Kodak was that, moment. That was that morning, morning. Yeah. No, mm -hmm. it wasn't the next morning. It was the morning before Ron, Rhonda and Wendy got there, mm -hmm. came over. Right. That was just the same morning that I heard that my, my, uh, uh, my name called. It was right after I heard my name called that I went out to Ron said, go check on the horses. Was there any uh, video or photo evidence captured on that no. part of the trip? Nothing. <laughs> no. Did you have recording equipment with you? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, you don't and, think about that stuff. You just, you're, you're right. involved in the moment of what's going on. You just don't. Right. Uh, Cause I said, um, took a picture of the horse upside down. That was ridiculous. I've never had a horse like that mm -hmm. to do something like that and not be dead. Mm -hmm. All right. four legs sticking straight up and it's still tethered to the line I had. And uh, the other horse is tethered over here. And this horse over here, which was tethered, is now loose, just standing there looking. Mm -hmm. uh, and rammed in between the two trees. Its butt and it, the, its neck rammed between two trees that the, that the thing was in. That's why I thought it was... In fact, when I got out of the tent and I walked out there and I saw those four feet up there like that, Ron was still in, in his bunk because he was couldn't move. He said, go check on the horses. I looked out there and saw Mo, the horses I thought saved my life with his legs up. And I was, Ron, Mo's dead. And that's what got Ron up and stumbled out there. And that's when all we realized that one horse had been unclipped from the tether strange question here for you ron you might know this <clears throat> rabbits and horses are close relatives not a lot of people know that um mm -hmm. you can take a rabbit and flip it on its back and rub its belly and put it into a trance and it does the exact same thing legs out freezes solid do you know if horses have that same ability i don't know i've never saw that happen Mm, uh, good question. They won't. They won't lay down for you that easy. <laughs> Just out of curiosity, maybe maybe a listener out there knows if that's if that's something that you can do with a horse. I know you can do it with alligators and other animals too. They'll kind of you kind of put them in that. Literally, they're you know like <clears throat> rabbit owners will do it to their pet rabbits. They literally call it a trance. 
I'm the same way. Um, I'm not. Me too. I can lay on my back and somebody rub my belly. I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, by the way, Toby, uh, I'm. My iPad's about ready to uh, lose its charge. Okay. So do you have a a plug-in? I have a plug-in, but then I have to take my earbuds out. Oh. Okay. Um, Let's see here. Let me pause the episode. All right, we just had to charge some batteries here, so Scott's voice is going to sound just as good, just a little bit farther away because he's charging uh, his little uh, iPad here. So, Ron, you were about to say something? Yeah, I was. I don't fuck out what it was. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were talking about the trancing paralyzation thing. Uh, With the horses? I, I know what. Yeah, no, that was one. That was not what I was thinking. I, <laughs> He's in a trance right now. It'll, it'll so. come back up. Yeah. Somebody rubbed Ron's belly. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I know there's elements to this story we don't have time to get into, but we do have some things to talk about uh, towards the end of the show. So it's not like this is going to be on the cutting room floor as far as as stories are concerned. There's the elements of what happened to your daughter Rhonda. She ended up having a visual. Uh, there were other strange sounds, I believe, that happened in, in the woods that night and, and things that uh, occurred. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the sounds, we need to play more of them here. So let's, let's play some more sounds here for the folks. We're going to play clip yeah. two. And um, let's see here. This clip, uh, I have it marked as Samurai Run. I don't know if you gave it to me as Samurai Clip 2, but that's what I'm calling it. So let's, uh, let's play Clip 2. Let me start over with that. Okay, oh. Ron, uh, go ahead. Scott? Oh, well, I, I can tell you that I recognize uh, even some of the morph- morphemes where the, the, the female, obviously a female, she goes, Avananu, Nagibash. Very clear articulation of, uh, of morphemes, a very clear utterance of language. Again, vananu wa nagibash. This is not uh, mimicry. It's not gibberish. It is articulated language. Without an and, you just played that at real time, Toby. Yeah. So that was the unaltered uh, yeah, one. You really get to to uh, again after your your ear gets acclimated to it. Even lay persons can hear that this is a language. All right, Ron. Any comments, Ron? Well, we we knew when this was happening up there that it was they were talking to each other and it was some type of a language, but we didn't realize how significant it being a language is until I found out from Brown University, Dr. Lieberman, that only humans are supposed to be able to do that. Then also you got Curran's report saying it's way outside the human range on places. So, yeah, what I was going to comment on earlier, though, was the way he got uh, frozen. It happened to me a couple of times up there at camp, but that's off the subject of uh, this, this soundbite. 
Well, that's okay. Do you want to talk, address that point? What do you mean frozen? Well, I shouldn't say frozen. That sounds cold, but we weren't cold. Uh, Warren Johnson and I were up there by ourselves, and we, uh, this thing was chattering right outside our, our shelter there, just probably 20, 30 feet away behind a big tree. We thought, we thought, well, if we jump out there, we'll, right quick, we'll see it cut off. We get a good visual. It was a bright night and uh, 8,400 feet elevation on a clear night. It's, <laughs> you can read a newspaper almost. So, um, we did. We decided we're once we're going to shoot out there and then we'll see it run away. Well, we shot out there, but nothing ran away. <clears throat> so we started walking up towards where we thought it was, this big tree. And we got probably 15 feet from that tree, maybe 10. And we both, in our tracks, just got paralyzed. Let's talk about Scott. Scott was uh, describing a while ago. And I relate to that in my book as a force field. <laughs> Excuse me. It just uh, was very kind of an intimidating feeling. You can't do anything. You can't go forward. And Warren said to me, he said, I don't know about you, but I can't move. I can't go. I said, I can't either. So we decided we'd just head back. And as soon as we started going back, we could we could move. Got inside the shelter and things started mouthing off again. I think it was having fun with us. And I think that's something we ought to bring out is they do play with people. They toy with you. And they think that's why they follow some people along the edge of the forest, you know, that people claim that and they hear them making sounds over there and follow them out and they stop and it stops and they do stuff like that. And, uh, we, we finally realized that after a while up there, they're just messing with us because they think that we think we're smarter than them and we're not. Just Ron, saying. do you know anybody who's been traumatized by their experiences to the point where it's really screwed them up? I do. Can you talk about uh, that experience? I mean, you've s seen and met a lot of people in this field here, but yet you're not uh, taking this to the next level of being traumatized. Talk about the power of, you know, being a witness. Uh, well, the power of being a witness. Hmm. I don't know what you mean by that. I, I lost... Uh, I, I can't really tell you who it is, uh, Toby, but uh, there's been more than one person that's been traumatized by this. And uh, uh, fortunately, Scott wasn't, and I wasn't. We're both still normal, aren't we, Scott? Uh, somewhat. Uh, somewhat normal, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's just uh, where you put things in your life. I know who I am as a human being. I know how special the human race is on this place of this planet. Something, some alien and we can call it God if you want to, has made us from a chocolate in his image. He, he plant, planted the cognizance DNA in us as humans, gave us all the abilities we have. And I personally think it was uh, Anunnaki. And that's what it's written about in the cuneiform text. And uh, they, there's a bunch of them. Some of them stayed here and, and influenced humanity. And that was where uh, Enoch, Enoch, uh, Gilgamesh and those other stories came from, the cuneiform text. And, uh, but I think these things have been messing around here for a long time before we were ever created. Because they made these giants and, and for work or something, I don't know why, but they gave them the abilities they have. And one of them is language. Some of them, I don't think they're all made the same. And, uh, I get carried away with this because I really think that's what's taking place. And I think we're all going to find that out in our lifetime. Well, you guys might. I don't know if I will or not. Oh. 
Scott, are we looking into something that is, uh, you know, more mysterious than language and being a undocumented, uh, you know, feral human? Are we looking into something alien? What's your opinion on this or do you care to comment? I would have to give you an opinion, but uh, there was a time when uh, Ron and I, I mean, the first, probably the first five years that Ron and I were involved, we had had an agreement that we were not going to talk about the, uh, the high strangeness, especially when we went and spoke at conferences and stuff, because there, there was just such a, in the research community, there was such a push against that. Um, believing that if you started talking about the high strangeness, then it throws the, you know, all of the people that are throws everybody off track from simply trying to prove the existence of them. So we didn't do that, but there came a time when Ron and I kind of looked at each other and says, and we decided Ron, we have to, we can't hide this stuff anymore. We have to start telling the truth. And, um, and we finally just came to the conclusion that there is, there's way more going on here than any of us can possibly know. Yes, that's. Rhonda, my daughter Rhonda sent me a, a book. It's called, I don't know, you guys may have heard of it. It's a bloodline of the gods and that's who we are. Bloodline of the gods by Nick uh, Redfern. You ever heard of that? Oh. Oh, yeah. Well-published uh, author, Nick Redford. Well, he came out with a book called, but we're supposedly, we're from the bloodline of the gods, which would be the Anunnaki. I'm just saying. <laughs> or a good Anunnaki, let's put it that way, because they're good and bad and everything. Yeah. Uh, got off subject. Sorry about that, guys. I'll try to do better and get on professional something. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great um there's a lot we want to get into we need to get into um but we have a limited amount of time here tonight uh, brett jill um i'm going to hand the mic over to you two i think it's time uh we talk about future projects with uh ron moorhead and ron moorhead and scott nelson Do you want Ron my, to bring it up or Brett? Go ahead. Uh, yeah, if I can get my microphone to work here. So, you know, this is kind of a secret that's coming out, but uh, we have done extensive interviews with Ron and Rhonda already in preparation for a film version of Voices in the Wilderness. And um, it has been an honor to have started this project and we have some big things that are planned um uh you know we'll make a journey to california coming up this fall in september to continue and then we've got some big plans um beyond that so we're really excited to to, to get this story out there and um and hear from some voices that haven't been heard from yet and and i think that's what's important about that is is maintaining this history because this is pivotal in the history of sasquatch and so we're just we're just ecstatic like i said ron you're on board here with the flash of beauty team i mean they won't always be probably the flash of beauty team there's other things coming 
down the pike, but this is a big one. Um, I'm just ecstatic that uh, everyone here is involved with this finally. And um, boy, Jill, any comments? Well, I'm I'm just so excited because, like Brett said, we had a chance to uh, do an extensive interview with Ron and Rhonda. Uh, I guess it was last fall, and you know, in, in that time, I think uh, Ron's book "Voices in the Wilderness." My copy has more highlights and notes and. Uh, uh, underlying passages uh, than any other book I own um, as we've as we've been piecing this together. And like Brett said, we have some exciting uh, shoots coming up uh, that we're really excited about. And uh, we're just we're just really excited that we get to share this uh, with everyone and involve people in the journey as we get this made. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I mean, one of the things that I've talked about is Tobe and I have this commonality between this movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And, and really, that's a movie that, that I fell in love with as a child, actually, because it's a story about an extraordinary thing happening to an ordinary guy. And Ron is anything but ordinary. And, and any of those guys that went up to the camp were anything but ordinary. But at the same time, these guys were just minding their P's and Q's going about their lives. And they stumbled upon something really monumental and so that's that's what the story's about the story is about discovery it's about camaraderie it's about getting out and um going on adventures as we've just heard from scott and ron you know the kind of adventures that they've been on and that's just the tip of the iceberg so we're we're going to cover the gamut you know it's not just about the sounds it's about the whole thing it's it's kind of like an indiana jones of the bigfoot world that's the way i see it I, I want to say something here too. I'm just uh, very happy that you guys are doing this. I've seen what you've done and you're, you're excellent at what you do. And I'm very proud that you're going to be part of it, that this is happening. It should have happened really a long time ago, but it's probably waiting just for you two and your team to get aboard and uh, to make it a fruition. It just needs to happen. It's a, it is a big story and it's a, a truthful story. And it, it carries a lot of weight for humanity if they'll just pay attention to it. Because it's not just about Bigfoot. It's it's about what, what they could be and what they could be here for. And uh, all the other things are going on with the alien intervention. Uh, and we're going to see a lot more of that, too, in the coming year or two. I Thank think. you, Ron. Appreciate it. And, and it's, it's really true. It's for this generation and for future generations. No question. Jill, if people are interested... And helping out with this doc, um, you know, there's an opportunity for people to kind of join from a crowdsourcing way. Uh, Talk about that. Yeah, so we do have um, we do have a Indiegogo set up. If you uh, go to Indiegogo and look up Voices in the Wilderness, you can find uh, our crowdfunding page because we do need we do need help. I mean, this is. uh, until I win Powerball, uh, this is, these are labors of love. So, you know, we have a lot of fun, uh, fun uh, rewards and ways to get involved that kind of it gives people access that they normally wouldn't have uh, during the filmmaking process. And and, you know, just to circle back, this story is also about the truth. And, you know, we can 
you can try to spin a story any way you want, but at the end of the day, the it's it's about telling the truth, and it's time that we give an honest that uh, an honest uh, take on on what Ron's witness, what Scott's been witness to, and uh, all the people that have been touched. Well, it's really true. Story. I mean, Ron, you're a big influence on me. Um, you and a handful of other Bigfooters were really um, the ones that didn't waste my time. You know, I've told other people along the way, you know, privately, it's just like, man, this was so much cooler than you told me. Why didn't, why don't you tell me what's really going on? Ron didn't waste my time that way. And he, you know, um, if you ever get a chance to sit down and have a beer with either one of these men, they're exactly who they are on air. And when this documentary comes out, it, you know, it's just going to be, um, so well received just based upon who's in it. But when the rest of the public, Joe Q public finds out who you are for the first time, and here's the evidence that you're backing up Scott with your crypto linguist background and Ron with your background, we haven't even talked about what happened in South America and what you've been involved with, with Brian Forrester down there, um, or the backup of Marcia K. Moore. Uh, working alongside you as well, looking into the Paracas people. There's so many layers to this. I don't know how much you're going to be able to, to, maybe it's a two-parter again. I don't know. But it's leading somewhere. Do you guys feel like this? Do you feel like this too, Ron, that this is leading, it's definitely leading you outside of the wood line? It's taking you. It very well could. There's been there's so many stories that I've got that, that I've, I've chased this thing down now for over 50 years. And and you know you could do a whole series really of, of some of the stuff. I it wouldn't get boring at all. Trust me, I I, I got some wing wingdingers. <laughs> I shouldn't be alive, really. I mean, I, I think the only reason I am alive is so I can share this experience and and get it down because I've I've just lived on the edge a lot, and uh, it's okay. I've had an exciting life and. I'm not here even next year. I, I, I've had a life that most people would like to have, and I've just been very fortunate. And I, I think whatever Anunnaki made me, <laughs> and I shouldn't say that, but you know, if you get in, I, I just love the cuneiform text because it's just it's got the actual happenings of what really happened and how all that's been taken out of context throughout the ages, different leadership. Uh, anyway, excuse me, Toby, but I'm just glad to be part of this team. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's thrilling. Um, you're also not just sitting on your backside. You've got things coming up here in particular. You're coming to my neck of the woods, uh, to talk here in Squim, Washington, and going to be speaking at, uh, I believe it's the seven Cedars casino sometime in, in September. Yes, uh, 26, let's see. Mm -hmm. I think it is. No, I don't know. Anyway, I go from there to uh, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, just like around Robin, then back here in just North Carolina. And then I got to head out to uh, California. And then I got to go to Montana for the uh, David Pilates as we went back up there. And then come back and go into Nashville and uh, speak down there. And there's some guys are going to take me out on an event down there. And other things too, but those are 
That's going to keep me busy for the next couple of months. Well, so Montana Con, Scott, you're going to be a part of that. It looks like October 7th and 8th. Um, it is in the heart of the Vortex. If you haven't been out to uh, where Joe Hauser's Montana Vortex is, Brett, Jill, I don't know if you've been out there yet. Um, Joe Hauser probably is someone you're going to talk to in regards to this. And I didn't know, Ron, uh, this is how dumb I am. I had no idea how integral Joe Hauser was, in a way, to looking into the Sierra camp and his his Montana vortex uh, kind of being spurred by everything that happened in the high Sierras. Um, talk a little yeah. bit about the Montana con Joe <laughs> Hauser and David Polites. Well, Joe, uh, he's a... Uh... I've known him for years and years. He was a wildlife biologist and he worked for PG&E. He had an encounter up in the, which he couldn't figure out because he's very classical was, uh, but he found this uh, uh, deer paw sticking up out of the, out of the uh, deer, deer paw, <laughs> uh, out of the uh, leaves. And he thought a uh, lion or someone had killed it, you know, and that's covered up with but anyway all the leaves were carried from another area and stuck over the deer so it wouldn't be seen he opened it up and i think he said it's in errors were, were taken out it's still warm so he stuck up on something that was pretty fast uh but that got him involved and he started looking looking up bigfoot because another event he had out in the woods with his son and he dug up alberry and i and came talk to us and He's a very interesting, very intelligent, very uh, informed person. And uh, we took him up there at the uh, uh, suggestion of a scientist, went to a four flat to study of the area and look around, see if there's any signs at all of any kind of manipulation of uh, speakers or any nails in trees or ditches have been dug for wires or anything like that. So he and I were up there, just him and I, for, for three days, just doing stuff and talking. He's a wildlife uh, survivalist, too. I mean, the guy can braid a rope out of weeds and make it strong enough. <laughs> but he, I seem to start a fire with a stick mm -hmm. too. You'd never try that. <laughs> but uh, he's a very interesting person. He ended up getting out of uh, the, the job he had and he bought the Montana Vortex because he realized this has got some kind of a mystery about it, this mm -hmm. whole thing, Bigfoot. So he bought that and it came along with a uh, 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 physicist Nick, I think is the name. He wrote a book about quantum physics because the, the vortex has a anomaly to it that you can actually see with your eyes. And they've got some really interesting stuff up there. So uh, he's part of this uh, Montana con that's coming up. Him and David. David moved up there from Colorado, David Polites. And uh, David and I have been friends for a long time, too. I met him in event in the early mm -hmm. 2000s somewhere. And I began to trust him. Uh, because he's very black and white. If you guys know David, he's 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 no joke guy. He <laughs> everything's black and white. And uh, anyway, uh, he he got me to agree to him going up to camp, mm -hmm. and I took him and his videographer up there, and that's where the missing porn one, the hunted, came in. Right. What's important when I mention that in my speeches, I talk about this the 15 minute section after me, not me. 15-minute section after me, which this woman's seen this pixelization go from one tree to another. And that, that conforms to my theory, too, that they have learned, and according to quantum physics, according to Dr. Uh, Paul Dirac, he got the Nobel Prize 1933 for antimatter, which is direct exchange between energy and matter. And matter and energy are interchangeable. 
it was proven later at the Hydron Collider in Switzerland. And uh, when they, a piece of matter turned into energy, you, know, you can't see energy, but you can sense it, you can detect it. So some of these people who have eyes that are just right can detect energy sources. And uh, anyway, she's seen this energy form move from one tree to the other. At the same time, a whole bunch, a bunch of uh, students out the school were, were witnessing UFO. So I think there's a UFO component to these things. I'm pretty sure that's what made them. Uh, but I'm, I'm speaking at that Montana con. David got hold of me when I was in Florida here a couple months ago. Jill, one more time with the crowdfunding website. How can people get involved if they love what they've heard and they want to get involved with the documentary, the website again? At Indiegogo, look up Voices in the Wilderness and you will you will find the project. Or you know what? Follow us on Facebook at A Flash of Beauty Bigfoot Revealed. We will have links up and we will be promoting it. And if you can share that with people uh, who who want to know the truth and want to hear, hear the stories of what happened at Sierra Camp, that would be fantastic. Scott, Ron, any future projects here? Ron, you, I think you're working on a new book. Is it too soon to talk about it? <clears throat> uh, well, I've just about got it done, so probably is. I just get into a little bit more of the uh, what I think is truth and how it solves a lot of mystery. And I don't. A lot of people used to call me you know, paranormal or the woo-woo or something like that, but I hit it face-to-face now. Yeah, maybe I am, but... Actually, uh, quantum science is not the same as pseudoscience. <laughs> quantum science is a is a science, and it answers a lot of the questions. It's in the world. It answers all the questions that the paranormal people have. How things happen? How does a thing disappear? How does that happen? There's a rule that has to govern everything that happens. And what is that rule? Well, you find out. You just do your research, like I've been doing, and you find out what that rule is. And so I get into a lot of a few more mysteries like that, how it's solved. As far as I'm concerned, Scott, any projects coming up here that you want to talk about? Well, um, my book has been in the works for a long time. <laughs> I've been asked uh, hundreds of times, "When is your book coming out?" And uh, but at least now we have a title for it. And Stephen helped me with this title, by the way. It's going to be called "Discovering the Language of the Green Man." There's an old, there's a, uh, there's a lot of reasons for that title. And that will be, of course, be uh, explained in the preface of the book. The language of the green man. Very cool. And of course, Ron will be a very big part of that book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, that's fascinating, you know, because what, I mean, giving away what the green man is, is kind of not a very big deep dive for most of the listeners here because it reaches back to yep. the old reliefs that we you would see on these gothic buildings uh, a depiction of a nature spirit a nature giant correct that's correct okay yep very yeah. clearly they existed in europe uh for a long long time yeah and brett you kind of get into this a little bit with some b-roll footage correct in part two with the green man well just with the idea that the sasquatch has been depicted throughout history and there's proof of it correct yeah 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 we've got some some i think some explosive if not controversial stuff Mm -hmm. 
in part two and some stuff that uh, is really going to, I mean, one of our inspirations, of course, for part two was the Quantum Bigfoot. You know, it was Ron's book. Right. And, uh, Ron is in, is in part two. And um, yeah, part two is going to get some people talking for sure. There's a teaser out there. If the audience hasn't, was, hasn't seen it yet, um, it's on our Facebook page check that out that's just the very tip of the iceberg you guys and it's a shareable link now you put it on vimeo it was a just it was attached momentarily just to facebook for a couple of days now yeah. people can share it through a vimeo link scott ron i think ron you're busy but scott i'm going to urge you if you can't to hop on a plane go to dinosaur world vernal utah it's coming up on september 7th and word has it that um i may be involved with uh, phenomicon from a an MC point of view. So if you uh, want to hear me ramble on, uh, join Scott and I have a pint. Um, Blind Frog Ranch is on my bucket list. I don't know if I can get there. We're going to try to make some crazy stuff happen there. Ron, yeah. Um, Ron, I'd love to see you out there too. So yeah, that's going but, home for me. Yeah. You have a, a dual reason to show up there. So um, there'll be some other surprises associated with Flash of Beauty and some other projects uh, coming our way here in the future. So Phenomicon is what we're talking about. We only have a couple more interviews to go before season one of Flash of Beauty. The podcast is done with it and we'll come back with part two. But Ron, Scott, I appreciate your time tonight and um, we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Toby. Thank well. you, guys. A lot of fun. This has been a Resonance Production Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at BigfootRevealedPod at gmail.com. Also, if you're just discovering the Flash of Beauty universe, you can watch our documentary on most major streaming platforms.